Travelcast B-Sides, Episode 49, Trash by Daniel Setiawan. The day she left, we forgot to take out the trash. At 5.30 in the morning, I heard the city trucks lumbering down the streets with their mechanical, prehensile arms, and remembered that we'd forgotten to take out the trash. I didn't care, though. I knew that in a few hours I would help load the last of her boxes into the truck, and she would leave. Everything was expanding without me, and I felt like the room was growing until I was lost in and filled with its great gray nothing. The weekend before, we had a big going-away party for Kate. We filled bottles with gasoline and shot them with a daisy pump-action BB gun. The bottles sat on the grill that covered our fire pit, and every time we broke one, the flames would shoot geyser-like into the sky. Everyone would cheer, and their faces, brilliant and joyful, appeared immortalized in the light of the explosions. We were all laughing then, even Kate, even me. There was trash everywhere after that party. We filled our gray trash can and blue recycling bin full until we couldn't close the lids, and still there was trash everywhere. Cans and bottles, plastic cups and paper plates, and half-eaten burgers and soggy potato chips. We filled three more extra hefty-sized trash bags and lined them up in the driveway next to the garage. It was Michael's idea to lay a tarp down in the corner of the backyard, where we piled the rest of the bottles, cans, and plastic cups. After the trash gets picked up Wednesday, he said, we'll be in the clear. It's not a problem, he kept saying like a mantra to ward off the doom that none of us could name. After the trash gets picked up Wednesday. The trash did not get picked up Wednesday, because we forgot, and because that morning, in the blue light and big gray nothing, I didn't care. Over the following week, the pile of cans and bottles in the corner of the yard grew. By Sunday, it was not just cans and bottles, but milk jugs and cardboard boxes, newspapers and styrofoam egg crates. We have to do something about this, we all agreed, as we stood about staring solemnly at the heap that evening. But we did not do a thing. The following Wednesday, we forgot to take out the trash again. This time, there was a lot of fighting about it. Michael claimed that he was the only one in the house that took out the trash, which was mostly true. And Theo argued that he was never even there, being the only normal overworked adult in the house, which was also true. Sam threatened that if something wasn't done about the trash situation, he would have to take matters into his own hands, which everyone ignored. And I locked myself in the bathroom and read Batman The Dark Knight Returns for like the hundredth time. Right before she left, Kate dropped a bottle of perfume in my bathroom. It shattered on the tile floor, and the smell of her was everywhere for days. It had long since gone, but that night, while thumbing through the glossy streets of Gotham, I suddenly thought about her perfume. I tried to remember what it smelled like, and couldn't. That seemed like the saddest thing in the world to me. If she hadn't left, none of this would have happened, I thought, then immediately felt stupid for having thought this. By the third week, the house descended into a state of imminent doom. Everyone seemed to have given up with a calm resolution, as if we were together trapped on a ship sailing over the edge of the world. We didn't feel like brave men, just defeated, 
The pile of recyclables was now a small hill, its mass augmented by several black plastic trash bags overfilled past the safe point of retention. Many of the bags had already burst like pregnant melons, spewing pizza crust and banana peels. Empty cigarette cartons and at least half a dozen warrant notices for Michael across the yard. We stopped speaking about it, which is how I knew it was bad, and no one even tried to remember to take out the trash next Wednesday. We just woke up that morning and sighed. Theo mostly stayed at his girlfriend's place up north. Mike drank, and Sam, who lived in the converted garage that stood separate from the rest of the household, began to carve a series of tunnels through the small mountain of waste to access his room. And I just didn't care about any of it. We shared a driveway with our neighbor, a pretty girl named Millie who worked at Dell and had a big orange cat named Hilmar. One day I saw her on the porch and asked if I could just hang out at her house for a while. I don't know why I asked. Up to that point our relationship had been nothing more than cordial. She said, okay, and we watched Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan in her living room, and didn't talk much, but I thought we had an all right time. I left feeling fine, and felt fine the whole two hundred yards back to the house, but then I walked into the backyard, and saw all that trash rising up before me, the miserable loneliness returned in a rush. I thought of all the little parts of Katie that were in that pile, all the things with her name on it. I grew angry, attacking the mountain, cursing and tearing at it with my hands. This madness could have gone on for a long time, but I was startled by the sound of Sam's laughter coming from somewhere deep within the mountain, and immediately felt embarrassed. I started spending more time over at Millie's. She had a great library of books, and I set myself to digesting Hemingway and Faulkner, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Millie loved Hemingway, especially A Movable Feast, but Dostoevsky was her favorite. She always said if you could read the Brothers Karamazov, you could read anything. She was a packaging engineer and spent all day using machines that abused packages, dropped them, shook them, set them on fire. I told her that that sounded like a fun job, but she said that she was bored and just wanted to travel and read books. Sometimes I told her about the stories I was working on, and she would help me with ideas. One night I told her about Katie and how she left. She listened attentively, but didn't offer much in the way of advice or consolation. She just said, Oh, and I didn't even notice. I just went on, went on like an idiot. By the fourth week, we'd lost the city garbage containers. They had been imbibed by the trash mountain, which, besides growing upwards, was beginning to expand outwards as well, with the slow, unstoppable grace of a glacier. One day, I opened the back door that led from our kitchen to the backyard, and the garbage tumbled into the house like a bunch of clowns. It was impossible for us to shut the back door after that, so we just left it open, and the trash kept spilling in. The mountain moved in, and Theo moved out. I did not see him again. I think he lives with his girlfriend up north. On the sixth week, we were discovered. A news helicopter flew low over the house, and we became a human interest story that aired on Channel 7. 
there was an interview with Mike, who threatened the reporters with a shovel, and an aerial shot of Sam standing atop the mountain, squinting up at the helicopter. It was the first time I'd seen Sam in days. Me and Millie watched the broadcast in her living room and ate Oreos. The day after the story aired, several city officials in gray and black suits, accompanied by two police officers and our landlord, Carol, appeared on the front door. Carol just shook her head and kept muttering, Oh my, oh my. I felt really sorry for her. We really screwed up the house. The guys in the suits said that the house was being condemned as a public health hazard, and we had to evacuate the premises immediately. When Mike tried to protest, the two police officers wrestled him to the ground and got him in handcuffs. They placed me in handcuffs as well, but Sam escaped into the tunnels after biting one policeman's hand. None of the officers were willing to follow him into the mountain, so they decided to cordon off the area with yellow crime scene tape and wait for Sam to emerge. I was released from custody without charges, but Mike stayed in jail due to his outstanding warrants. Millie made me a bed on her living room couch and told me I could stay as long as I liked. I told her that I would move out as soon as I found a new place, though truthfully, I felt I couldn't leave. Not yet. I felt important things were about to happen. The police had the mountain under surveillance day and night, but the mountain continued to grow. Stranger still, random objects began to appear among the refuse. An old engine block, 500 feet of bailing wire, a storefront mannequin, a shoebox full of love letters. No one knew how this was happening. Word began to spread about Sam and the mysterious mountain, and the crowds began to gather at the edge of the caution tape, snapping pictures, craning their necks. Every evening at six, Sam would appear at the top of the mountain, and the crowds would cheer and wave and hold up signs that said, We love you, Sam, and hang on, Sam, we're with you. There were other signs, too, that read, In the mountain we trust, and long live the mountain. Millie and I watched for Sam every day and waved at him from our porch when he appeared. He never said a thing, just looked out on the crowd, which was growing almost as rapidly as the mountain, and smiled serenely. He looked angelic. The city officials were going nuts. They could not demolish the mountain because of Sam, and the crowds gathering on the streets were beginning to become a problem. A special task force was commissioned, and a negotiator sent in to discuss terms with Sam. The negotiator offered him immunity. He said Sam had proven his point, whatever point that was, and that no one was mad at him. He promised that if Sam just came out, the city would not tear down the mountain. He never heard the microwave crashing down from the upper precipices of the mountain. It hit him right in mid-sentence. Luckily, the negotiator suffered only a crushed foot. I didn't believe that Sam maliciously sent that microwave down, but that was how the incident was interpreted, and Sam was labeled a threat to public safety. A SWAT team, specially trained in splunking and close-quarter combat, got the green light to enter and extract Samuel Lindsay. They entered the mountain at 5.55 p.m. on a Tuesday, and at 5.59, Sam appeared at the top of the mountain. 
Millie and I tried to warn him. We made a big sign that read, They're coming. I held it up over my head. Millie jumped up and down. If Sam read the sign, he did not show it. He just smiled serenely at us, as he always did. The yelling and cheering from the crowd was deafening. Then Sam held up his hand. He's going to speak, someone shouted, and a silence descended upon everything. Even the police stood half-poised out of their squad cars, waiting. The moment of silence stretched to the point of breaking madness. Then Sam spoke. People of the world! His voice was deep and booming, and not at all as I remembered, as if emanated from the mountain itself. All your hopes and dreams, he said, and held his hands over his head and his fingers outstretched toward the sky. All your deepest desires, he bellowed. Then, with the meek voice of an eighteen-year-old boy, he said, Go poof. From somewhere deep in the mountain came a low rumble that grew steadily into something tremendous. The ground began to tremble, and pieces of the mountain began to shake free. A lawn chair came crashing down, bits of rubbish, apple cores and avocado skins, socks, shoes, cans, bottles, and a daisy pump-action BB gun came raining down. A woman screamed, and chaos ensued as everyone desperately tried to get away. Balanced atop the mountain, which now swayed quite visibly, Sam yelled, All your hopes and dreams, one last time. Go poof! And then it all came down. It fell neatly, like a planned demolition. The bottom blew out, and the top collapsed vertically after it. I saw Sam falling, then disappear with all the tumbling garbage. And that was the last I saw of him. The trash came spilling out onto the street in a great wave that buried the spectators with their signs, the police and their squad cars, the city officials in their gray black suits, the TV reporters and their cameras. It came surging up to Millie's porch, and I threw my arms around her, but the trash miraculously flowed around her house and did not touch us. When it was all settled, there was just a sea of waste as far as you could see, and our porch that stood out like an island. And there, on the porch, I held Millie long after the rumbling had stopped and the refuse had settled, and I felt so incredibly happy. And that is the end of the story. This is the epilogue. Sam was never found again, never seen again. A small cult adopted him as their messiah, prostrated themselves before little trash pyramids that preached his second coming. Mike got out of jail, married his parole officer, had five children. I never moved out of Millie's house. The nine members of the special SWAT team were found in the rubble dazed, but mostly unharmed. During their debriefing, each member claimed to have seen great wonders in the mountain, unlike anything they had ever seen. When asked to describe what he saw, Private Griffin responded with tears in his eyes. All my hopes and dreams.
This story was brought to you by Drabblecast Productions. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Jan Dennison. Jan is many things, but she's definitely not the disembodied spirit of a growing mountain of thrown away hopes and dreams. Definitely not. And of course, special thanks to you listening right now for being a Drabblecast B-Side subscriber. Without your support, the Drabblecast couldn't be what it is. We greatly appreciate your support. sent men to graves, made widows weep and wail. All for the glory of a good drinking story and the cheese of a humpback whale. Young Jack Taylor was a mighty fine sailor and he knew how to handle a teat. He had whiskey for blood like every sailor man should, was the best milkman in the fleet. They were out three days when they heard her break the waves with the crash from a thundering tail. Off the starboard bow there was a humpback cow, get the milkman ready to sail. Get the milkman ready to sail.